I totally forgot there wasn't a video today, so that's on me. <laughs> Happy April Fools, everyone. If we have not met, my name is Mike, I'm the lead pastor here, and we are going to be changing things up a little bit today. So for the past couple months, we have been going through the Gospel of Mark together. I wanted to change it up because I was getting tired of Mark, and we're going to be in Matthew today. So I invite you to grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the pew ones, it's on page 482. Well, have you ever met someone whose uh, looks deceived you? Or maybe you had a friend growing up who went on to be incredibly successful, beating all the expectations you had for them. Or the other friend who seemed super successful in high school, but then never really made anything of themselves. I'd, uh, I heard a story about a man whose uh, life was marked by regular and repeated failures. And I'm sure you know who this individual is. But I'm going to give you a brief summary of his life and then see if you can guess who this person is. So he tried out for a career in state legislature and lost. He then pivoted and tried to start his own business, which failed within the next year. Two years later, he finally got that state legislator position, but then had a nervous breakdown two years after that. He tried moving up in his political aspirations and tried to become the state speaker, which he again lost. He finally found his calling in practicing law. But then after he had done a successful career for a few years in law, he pivoted back to his political goals, where he was defeated in Congress for his first run. He finally got elected only to lose re-election two years later. After that, he tried running for U.S. Senate and lost. After that, someone asked him to join on as his vice president running mate, which you'd think by this point, whomever was running for president would have figured out that this guy was bad luck, right? The next election cycle after that, he again ran for Senate and lost again. You'd think at some point he would have given up on this journey, right? From all outside appearances, this person seems and sounds like a major loser. But underneath all these failures was a strong, steady man who had learned his lesson and continued biding his time until the moment was right for him to step into his role. Does anyone know who this person is? Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States. Despite all these external appearances of failure, Lincoln continued persevering, building a steady confidence underneath his exterior that prepared him to lead our country through the most divided time in history. Had he not dealt with these repeated failures and setbacks throughout his life, I don't think he would have been ready to be the steady guide throughout the Civil War. Today, we're going to see how Jesus subverted people's expectations about his kingly role. We'll see how his arrival wasn't exactly what people thought. We'll see how he creates his own new people and then the faithful markers of those who are faithfully following and obeying him. So with that said, I'd invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together this morning. We'll begin, be in Matthew chapter 21, reading verses 1 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. As you're seated, I'd ask you to once again please pray with me. Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you and praise you for the opportunity we have to intentionally take time to stop and ponder and reflect some of the implications of you sending your one and only son to earth to take on flesh and ultimately die a sinner's death in our place. We thank you that because of the work of Jesus, we can now come before your presence with joy and singing. We pray that we would be like the children that we saw singing this morning, that we would come to you boldly and with no shame, with no embarrassment, because you are a good, kind, heavenly Father who loves us, who cares for us, and desires what's best for us. I pray that as we study your word to us from Matthew 21, that we would be reminded to fall on our faces and worship with you. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the whole point of this passage is to demonstrate and share the arrival of of the king of everyone. And after taking a couple months in Mark, I wanted to spend some time in a different gospel just to get some slightly different perspectives and nuances than we've seen in Mark's gospel. But don't worry, we will come back to this passage in Mark probably by the end of June. But Mark's gospel is primarily geared towards Gentile believers, written most likely in Rome to the Roman audience. Matthew is trying to craft his story directly more towards the Jewish heritage. So as he writes his book, he's going to be talking about the ways Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises and prophecies, as we'll see repeatedly throughout today's text. And similar to Mark and the other gospels, Matthew could be described as an extended passion narrative. Because the first 20 chapters cover the first 30 years of Jesus' life, and then the last eight recount the last week of Jesus' life. That is his death. But spoiler alert, he doesn't stay dead. That is literally the point of us gathering together. All that to say, the entire story that Matthew is is telling has been building up to this point in Matthew 21, Jesus' last arrival in Jerusalem during the Passover week. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, he actually spent time in Jerusalem before, as any good Jew would do, but this was the last one that he would come to specifically celebrate the Passover, leading to his death. Now, it it talks about the Passover celebration, which was a really big deal in the Jewish calendar. 
Like we don't have, honestly, a holiday that can, can summarize how important the, the Passover was. If you took Fourth of July, Thanksgiving, and Christmas and threw all of them in together into a week-long holiday, that would be similar to what the point and purpose of Passover was. The surrounding communities would shut down as everyone streamed to Jerusalem to celebrate the biggest event in their history. All this means that the city would swell to five to six times its normal size, meaning there would be around two million people in and around Jerusalem. Today, there's only 950,000 people that currently live in Jerusalem. Imagine that doubled, and that's what most people think Passover was like in the first century. That means there were parties to be had, there was food to be eaten, celebrations to participate in, and most importantly, the Passover meal to be had. That means friends would be reconnecting, friends would be catching up with each other after not seeing each other for a year. So all that to say, this holiday is a party unlike any other. Now, let's think about where this is taking place again. Remember, as we've been studying Mark together, that has primarily been taking place up north in Galilee, specifically in Capernaum, which served as Jesus' home base for most of his ministry. So in order for the disciples to go down to Jerusalem, they had to travel south about 70 miles all the way down here to the capital of Jerusalem. Now, uh, Jerusalem would most likely have looked something like this during Jesus' ministry. A couple things I want to point out here. First is the temple right here. The second thing is the path to the Mount of Olives, which goes up to the east outside the city here. You can see a little bit better picture if you look at like an aerial view here. So here you can see Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll talk about on Friday. Here would be the Mount of Olives, and here is most likely where Bethphage was, but no one actually knows where it was. Also note, because it's also mentioned in here, Bethany would be about two miles away from the city where Jesus was staying with his disciples, most likely with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. That's a different story for a different day. Back to the text. What Jesus does at the beginning here is he takes two of his disciples and sends them out to go find a donkey and her colt. Now, if you think about it, a donkey seems like a weird choice. Because it's not just the donkey, it's also her colt, which in Mark's account, he tells us his colt had never been ridden by anyone before. Now, at this point of the journey, you'd have to, have to think the disciples were wondering why he needed a donkey. As we saw on the map, like, remember, like, if they're, if they're in Bethany, they're stones throw away from, uh, um, from Jerusalem. Maybe Jesus got tired, like, just take a few more steps and we're almost there, Jesus. Make, maybe just let him take a quick break. But thankfully, the disciples have learned throughout their entire time, throughout their interactions with Jesus, not to question him, so they are obedient. They respond just carrying out exactly what Jesus says. Notice as well that Jesus gives them like a secret code or a password in order to to get this donkey away. He says, in verse 3, if anyone says to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Like it's almost like like this, this secret passcode, you know, like open sesame to get the door open in front of you. But in this case, the code is, the Lord needs them. Now, imagine that you are going on a journey, and you walk into someone's garage, grab their keys, start their car, and take it off with them. And if anyone asks you, your reply is, the Lord needs it. How do you think that would go? Not great. But it might help you to know, like, the question could be, which Lord are we talking about? Because you can translate that word Lord as just owner. So the disciples could be saying that the owner of this donkey actually has need of it. Now, there are a couple things that, that, like, there's all sorts of ink spilled over this. Like, was the owner of this donkey with Jesus' band and his disciples? I think a bigger point is being made by Matthew here, and that is that Jesus is the Lord of everything. Jesus is the master of everything. There's nothing that is left out of his ownership, nothing that is left out of his oversight. 
So there's nothing weird about him using and taking what is rightfully his. Think back to that car example. If it was your car that was parked in someone else's garage, wouldn't it make sense for you to go in and take it? That's what Jesus is saying here. Everything that you see is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Nothing is left out of his oversight. But there's a whole lot more going on to the story than Jesus just being tired and needing someone to, to help him rest his weary legs. This act is actually done to fulfill a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Now, the original context tells us, Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy is telling us that there are a few descriptions about this coming king, this coming person who's going to bring salvation to Israel. It says that he is righteous, says that he has salvation, and he is described as humble. So when Jesus comes, he is fulfilling this prophecy about God's deliverance from, from their enemies, deliverance from the judgment that is directed towards them. But, but this judgment to come is actually directed towards his people, as we'll see in the next section. It also tells us that peace is going to come, but that's in the next verse. So remember verse 9, we saw these, these, these primary descriptors of this coming king, righteous, having salvation, and humble. Contrast that with this verse. God says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 10 is where judgment actually comes. Notice it says these chariots, the war horse, the battle bow shall all be cut off. Those aren't going to matter anymore. And peace will actually come. But where is this peace extended to? says, to the nations. And then what's left out of his rule? His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That means everything is under his oversight. Now, what this, this, another piece that I think that this signifies for us is the people's expectations of the coming Messiah are summarized by verse 10, where it says Jesus is going to come. He's going to politically destroy all these, these people that, that are oppressing us, that are bearing down on us. And finally, we as the Jews are going to be able to rule rightly as God intended it to be. But Jesus coming on a donkey tells us that he's going to come differently. He's going to come with humility and speaking righteousness and having salvation. See, Jesus actually came to deal with the bigger, the real problem, what was underneath all the exterior problems that we're dealing with. It wasn't the Roman rule over them, it was sin. But we'll get to that. So the disciples obey Jesus' command, and then in order to create a saddle for Jesus, they actually put their cloaks on the donkey. Now, Matthew's account doesn't include this detail about riding the colt, but what it does say in Mark's account is that Jesus is riding a never-before-ridden colt, which signifies his authority and control, even extending to the animals. But now it spreads beyond just the disciples, and the disciples aren't the only ones who are now excited for Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on this colt. And word starts to travel about Jesus coming. And then verse 8 says... Remember in Mark's gospel, we've been repeatedly seeing this person pop up or group called the crowd, which can be seen as a group of people or who are often just getting in the way of what Jesus is doing. This time, the crowd is actually participating in and celebrating in this big arrival that is taking place for Jesus. Now, part of this is likely due to an account that is not in any of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It is only in John's account, and that is the resurrection of one of Jesus' best friends, Lazarus. 
So just earlier in the week, Jesus had actually gone to raise Lazarus from the dead, which means word would have started to travel in the surrounding areas and and most definitely gotten to Jerusalem because it was just a couple miles away. People were starting to get excited about this, about something, something big is happening here through and because of Jesus. And because this crowd is so excited about this coming king coming in, in in their minds to throw over the Roman rule for them, they realize that, that he can't just walk on the plain old ground. So notice that it says they spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut palm branches from the trees and spread them on the road. What they are doing, this is signifying that they are pulling out the red carpet for the arrival of the king. Now, what is described here would actually be typical of a kingly processional. There's an account in, in 2 Kings 9, another one in the book of Maccabees, which, which talks about palm branches and cloaks being thrown on the ground for the king's processional as he comes back home as the conquering king. But notice as well, there's a, a couple details that Matthew tells us about this crowd. There's two different crowds that are now starting to merge together in this parade. There's a crowd that went before him, and there's another crowd that followed him. Two different groups of people are now coming together to celebrate this processional. So word is starting to spread through the city, which would be the crowd going before him. But his merry group of followers, his disciples, haven't given up yet. Spoiler alert, they will on Friday when you come back for our Good Friday service. But those are the ones who are following behind him, expecting Jesus to overthrow these Romans. But notice what they're saying as well. They are shouting a specific phrase, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What they're doing is reciting Psalm 118 to Jesus. This psalm was actually one of the psalms that was used every Passover, was recited every Passover to give praise to God. So if you look at Psalm 118, it says, Save us, we pray, which in Aramaic is translated as Hosanna. So as we just sang together this morning, what we're doing when we sing Hosanna is, Save us, Lord. So Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So it begins with the word Hosanna, which is just saying save us or save now. They go on in this Matthew's text to call him the son of David. Notice they've replaced Lord with son of David. Connection here. They're referring to him with his messianic title. He is the one who has come to save us. He is God. And then they're saying blessed is he asking for this military victory that they think is guaranteed to come. But these people start singing and shouting and words start spreading so quickly throughout the city that it says that the whole city was stirred up in verse 10. The whole city was stirred up. Now, that word translated stirred up is actually a lot more violent in the original and throughout most of the Bible it is actually used to refer to things like hurricanes and tornadoes. So when it says, when you think stirred up, like think the whole city is going crazy. It's almost like there's a riot that is taking place. And everyone starts asking a very important and specific question that every single one of the Gospels was written to answer, who is this? Notice this connection here. Just a verse before, they're saying, Hosanna, save us, son of David, save us God. And then who is this? See, they're still missing it. All these things that are made visible right in front of them, they just continue missing or ignoring or neglecting. And this question of who is this is one of those questions that the disciples ask of Jesus regularly. In fact, in Mark's gospel that we'll get to in a few weeks, in Mark chapter 8, the entire book hinges on Jesus asking Peter that question, who do you say that I am? 
Remember they talk about what other people are saying. He's a prophet, he's Elijah, he's Moses, but who do you say that I am? And that is the most important question any of us could ever ask today. Who, who is this? Now notice how the crowds who had just been calling him the son of David, now look at what they call him. This is a prophet. So where before, again, they were calling him equal to God, the son of David, now they're just referring him as a prophet. And people from his hometown would have been coming. So they would have seen this as either the hometown hero coming into the city that's going to help us finally throw over the Roman rule, or it's demeaning. Like remember the, the account that we've, we've read about before where uh, Nathaniel is told about Jesus, who's from Nazareth, and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Lynn, since you're here today, I'll say it. It's like saying someone's from Faribault. Nothing good can come out of Faribault. I'm just kidding. It just smells funny. So already in this text, we're starting to see a, a disconnect between people's initial excitement and, and their, immediately, their immediate response to Jesus' actual arrival. So people are excited about Jesus coming in as David's royal son, that is the Messiah, but they forget to notice what it is he's riding on, a, a donkey, which signifies he's coming in as a humble servant. And how often do we miss the things that are going on around us? Let me think of a scene from uh, the first Guardians of the Galaxy where someone tells uh, the, the character Drax that something just went over his head. He replies, nothing goes over my head. My reflexes are too fast. I would catch it. Where are we tempted to make worldly judgments instead of looking and seeing how God actually designed things? All of us are tempted to, to use and, and, and we are trained by the world to use wrong judgments in assessing what is going on around us. That's where we need God to remind us to move our eyes, to stop looking at the things that are around us and instead look and fix our gaze on Him. Bring all our issues, bring all our troubles to Him. So Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem was coming not as a conquering king, but as a suffering Messiah. Then after He enters, we, we see a bit of a different change of focus in Jesus' ministry. Here we see what the people of the king are supposed to look like. So after stirring up the town, after bringing what, what looks like a big riot to Jerusalem, Jesus changes his focus to the temple in verse 12. And now he comes to actually cleanse or purify the temple. Now, it begins by saying that he drove out all who sold and bought. So verse 12, Jesus entered the temple, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple over to the, the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now again, I think it's... it's um, helpful for us to see a little bit of a picture of, of what the temple looked like. So this is a wide, broad-scale perspective. I've actually shown this picture to you before in a previous sermon, but I want to point out a few different things. First is, uh, you can't see it because the, the font is so small, but this area is referred to as the Court of the Gentiles. This is the closest any uh, supposedly clean Gentile could get to the temple. And then after that was, was a barrier... And, and on the wall of that barrier, it, it literally said, uh, if any Gentile enters beyond this wall, they are held liable for their own death. So inside that wall was where, where Jews could finally go. And then getting even closer to that, this area right here is referred, referred to as the court of the women. This is the closest that cleansed, purified uh, women who were Jews could go into the temple area. And then it was only cleansed or purified men who could go through this little gate here and actually get closer to the temple. And then even closer inside of that, the Holy of Holies, only one priest who paid a penalty once a year could enter in and, and be in the very presence of God. 
So you see that the group just gets smaller and smaller and smaller the closer you are getting in to the temple. Now, what's most interesting about all these people who had set up shop, can anyone guess where they took, were setting up their shops? The court of the Gentiles. So that area, the only place where Gentile people could come and pray and worship and love and honor the one true God, had been converted into a marketplace. Now, the people who, who were going about here, like so often, I, I don't know if you have this, when I read this story, I have a tendency to view these guys as like the bad guys, like wearing the Darth Vader mask and, and trying to just get whatever they can out of these people. All the descriptions of the people that were here were, were a necessary occupation. There were people who sold and bought. Now, think of Jesus and his disciples who had just walked 70 miles to get to Jerusalem. Do you think it would have been helpful or hurtful to have to try to bring all their sacrifices with them on that 70-mile journey? So people would bring their money in order to get the things that they needed to participate and celebrate in this whole Passover system. Then on top of that, you have these money changers. Now, at the time, similar to America, before we became one country, there were all these different currencies that people used throughout the country. And some of them even had an image of Nero on them, which was viewed as unclean by the Jewish people. So in order to be able to pay the temple tax, you needed to go get a specific kind of money. So money changers were required to, to help people get and, and participate in the whole Jewish sacrificial system. And then the last one is those who sold pigeons. These were specifically those who were geared towards the poor. The pigeons were, were the, the lowest offering for those who couldn't afford to get any of the other sacrifices. Like all of these people were actually necessary and integral to the whole Jewish, Jewish system taking place. Yet Jesus comes in and turns over all of them. Now, notice the text does not say that these people were, were stealing from anyone. It could be implied by Jesus' response, or it could be the mere fact that they were in the temple was missing the entire purpose of the temple. Remember, this temple was divided into different areas. There's a little bit of a close-up of the temple itself. So that's the dividing wall between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews where they could come and approach God. But this whole area was taking place, the one place Gentiles would want to come and worship God, which is where then Jesus actually quotes from two Old Testament passages to talk about this. So look at verse 13. Jesus says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now that first phrase, my house shall be called a house of prayer, is quoted from Isaiah 56. The second one, referring to them as a den of robbers, is taken from Jeremiah chapter 7. So in Isaiah 56, here, here's a prophecy that God says. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer. For who? All peoples. Who was being left out in this whole sacrificial system that, that the Jews had allowed to take place in the court of the Gentiles? I don't think it's an accident that Matthew left that out because the, his readers would have known the way the rest of the Isaiah passage goes. This is meant to be a house of prayer for all the world, and you're not allowing that to take place. The second verse that Jesus quotes from in calling it a den of robbers is from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7:11. he says, "'Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes?' Now, what's taking place in that, in that Jeremiah passage is the people are, are going and, and sinning however they want. They are stealing from people. They are robbing. They are doing any and everything that, that they can think to do. And then as soon as they're done sinning, they walk into the temple, pay the penance or whatever sacrifice they need to make, and assume or act as if everything is fine. So they're using the temple as a talisman to cover over their sins. 
This is part of the reason that, that, that we as Protestants have such a big issue with the practice of indulgences. Because believe it or not, saying a couple of Hail Marys is not enough to atone or cover for your sins. Now, Jesus' cleansing in this passage is not only geared towards ethnic identities. Because of his work, because of his arrival to come and purify what's taking place in the temple, look at verse 14. It says, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Originally, before Jesus came, the blind and the lame were viewed as unclean, which means they couldn't participate in, they couldn't celebrate anything that was taking place during Passover week. Now, in this case, Jesus is refocusing and reframing the purpose of the temple into what it was originally meant to be. This tells us that those who came to the temple through Jesus, that is the blind and the lame, are completely cleansed and purified from all their impurities. Those who don't, the money changers, all those other people, are cast out. So Jesus here is showing us the true standards that should be used to judge people instead of the man-made rules that had affected those who claimed to be following after God. And in response to this, the higher-ups now start to get upset in verse 15. It says they saw the healings. Notice even what it's described. It says the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. They're even admitting and acknowledging that what Jesus is doing is wonderful. But then there's something that happens that they cannot tolerate. It says the people who were far off have been brought near, but they don't even care. Do you notice that? Their hearts are so hard that they don't even mention the wonderful things that were happening. Instead, what sets them off is children, children who are crying out. They picked up the cry of the crowds around them, and they join in, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now, there's something from children that we as adults would do well to learn. Did you notice how unashamed they were this morning? The pure worship of God that they had, there was no embarrassment, there were no concerns. I didn't see anyone else's kids try to come up and talk to me either, so way to go in training your kids, parents. I think there's a tendency for us as we get older that in our old age to become more cynical. And then with that cynicism, we start to call it wisdom. There's a, a quote uh, from G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, that I love, and it's a paragraph long where he talks about the way God loves repetition. But one sentence in there has stood out to me. He says, It may be that God has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. See, where children are carefree and exuberant, as we age, we have a tendency to become overly concerned with what others think about us. We tend to be more reserved. This is why it's so important to have children in our lives. I'm often amazed by my children's simple faith and trust in God. Because believe it or not, children aren't a distraction. They're a reminder, a beautiful picture of the simple faith that we as adults need. We have a tendency to get distracted by theological arguments or trying to make logical connections. When Jesus tells us if we want to enter his kingdom, we have to become like children. In fact, the study of Scripture, St. Gregory the Great actually said, Scripture is like a river, broad and deep, shallow enough here for the lamb to go wading or the child to go swimming in, but deep enough there for the elephant to swim. See, Jesus actually welcomes all to come to him. From the child to the person with the highest IQ in the world. Everyone needs him and only can find their answers to their longing for, for whatever they have in their life in him. And in this case, in, in Matthew's account, it's those with the high IQ who are questioning if Jesus really knows what's going on. 
Does he even hear or care about these kids who are praising him as if he were God? But even this praise and prayer was prophesied about in Psalm 8, as Tammy read to us as the kids were sent out. Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Notice the way that this psalm contrasts the greatness of God with the tiny little praise of a baby. As we've been seeing in Mark's gospel, the way God's enemies are defeated at the end of time is through words. Notice that it's through the words of babies and infants that God's enemy and avengers are dealt with. As people praise God, the strength comes to still, to stop, to cease the enemy and the avenger. Everything that has breath can praise the Lord, even children. So here we've seen in this section the way people were left out from the full inclusion of the worship of God. We saw the Gentiles who were cast out by the money changers. We saw the blind and the lame who were now able to come before the the temple with boldness and thanksgiving because of Jesus. And then we've also seen the children praising God. But those are the exact people that God says are now a part of his family. So who are you tempted to leave out of God's reach today? But then Jesus goes on to give us a living parable, a picture of everything that had taken place in this story up until this point. And here we see what it looks like to live life under the king. Now, the way I would summarize this section is a living parable, a picture of everything we've studied and the proper application of Jesus' so-called triumphal entry. I say triumphal in, in quotes because he didn't come riding on a horse, he came riding in on a donkey. Now, the first thing we see about Jesus in this section is he had gone out to Bethany to spend the night with his friends, and he came back to the city, and he became hungry. Anyone else hungry yet? We're getting close to lunchtime, I realize that. Now, this is a normal human endeavor, and I don't know about you, but generally after a night of not sleeping, which means I'm not eating, one is hungry when they wake up. Now, part of this is is to show us another picture or evidence to Jesus actually being a human. Because if, if, if he was some like, like illusion or if he was God, he would have no need to actually eat on a regular basis. But another aspect to the hunger is how one responds when they're hungry. Now, for me, when I wake up, if I don't have my morning coffee, I am a grump. Like, I've, I've been tempted to get this coffee cup on a regular basis, which tells the level of my conversational ability in the morning. If you can't read it, the top says, go away. Drink a little more. It says, don't talk to me. Third one says, not ready yet. Fourth one says, almost there. And then after you finish your coffee, it says, okay, you can speak now. I had met with someone this week who told me that exact same thing and said, I can't talk to you yet. Let me finish my coffee. Or maybe coffee isn't your thing and you actually need food in the morning. And if you don't get your food, you become hangry. Hangry is what happens when you get so hungry, you become angry, which leads to a meme like this, which says, sorry for what I said when I was hungry. And if this is you, if you're someone that does have a tendency to get hangry, you're in good company because so does Jesus. So Jesus becomes hungry, looks over, and sees a fig tree. Walks over to it, expecting to be able to eat a delicious fig, and finds nothing on it except only leaves. Now, this has a tendency to not make sense to us. Like Mark's account even, even actually tells us that it wasn't even the season for figs to be on the trees. Matthew is telling us, though, that there are leaves on it, and that is important because the fig tree has become a dirty, rotten liar. The way you can tell if a fig tree has figs on it is by leaves. So the fact that the fig tree has leaves on it is supposed to signify that it is time for figs to be evidenced or bearing fruit on this tree. 
So Jesus responds to this duplicitous tree by cursing it. And the next thing you know, this tree is dead. Now, this does bear just a, a quick comment. One of the, another pieces we've seen throughout Jesus' ministry is Jesus' unique care and concern for people above the rest of creation. Uh, Micah preached on that just a, a few weeks ago with, with the herd of pigs, where 2,000 pigs die and, to save one man. So people are the pinnacle of God's creation. It doesn't mean we don't care about the rest of creation, but there is a hierarchy to this. And as always, with all the parables, there's far more to this story than Jesus just being hangry. But we needed all the other pieces building up to this to properly understand it. What Jesus is signifying is the fig tree is representative of the way God's people had been living up until this point. So just like this fig tree gives off the appearance of bearing fruit, God's people are giving off the appearance of holiness, but are not actually living out the way God has commanded them to live. Now, how often of that is, is that true in our lives as well? Especially when we come to church. We do our best to act all put together when we walk in the door, despite yelling at our kids on the way out the door, and then cussing out the person who cut you off when you were driving here. But as soon as you walk through the doors, we put on a smile and act like everything's okay. It's no wonder people give up on the church when they see that kind of hypocrisy in their lives. Instead, we need to ensure that we're actually bearing fruit in our lives, not just the illusion of fruit. But that's only one part of the story because the text goes on to tell us something even more. It says, when the disciples saw it, they marveled. But notice that, that as often happens with the disciples, their focus in this situation is on the wrong thing. They're focused and fixated on this tree. But Jesus wants them to see something else that is going on even deeper than this. Jesus answers them, Truly, or amen, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, this isn't something literal that we or the disciples are supposed to act out. Otherwise, there would most likely be an account of the disciples literally moving a mountain. In this case, the mountain is serving as a metaphor for something that seems impossible. That is, praying for something that seems impossible from a worldly perspective, kind of like Jesus rising from the dead. But notice as well that there is a connection here between prayer and faith. Now, faith needs to be oriented towards the right person. If we have true faith, which is evidenced by the fruit in our lives, our requests will be according to the will of God, instead of using those prayers to waste them on selfish things. That's where we need to realize God is the God of the impossible and will answer our prayers. So as we think through all this, what does your life look like? Are you bearing fruit or are you just bearing leaves and giving off the appearance of fruit? It's not a coincidence that Matthew's gospel begins, the account of Jesus' story with John the Baptist, who commands people to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, it's easy, at least at first, to just give off the appearance of fruit, but over time it's going to start to wear on you. But if you have faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit will actually work in you to actually make it possible to bear fruit, because apart from that fruit, we're dead. John the Baptist in Matthew 3 goes on to say, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the summary is, bear fruit or you will die. Now, throughout this passage, we've seen three things that Jesus has revealed to us. First is we need to look at things God's way instead of the world's way. 
Second thing is God's mission is to all people. There's no one left out. There is no one who is too far away from God's reach. Third, we must pray, have faith, and pursue living out this fruit instead of just pretending to have fruit. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that because you came to earth, that you sent your son to take on I in our place and then be raised again, we can now come before you with thanksgiving. We thank you that because of what you've done, change is actually possible. Bearing fruit is actually possible. I pray that we as your people would would not miss the realities of what are taking place around us on a regular basis. Please open our eyes to the implications of your truth, of your word. God, may we pursue humility. May we pursue brokenness because what you have asked for is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God, I pray for this holy week that as we think through, contemplate, and process some of the realities of of the resurrection, that that we would be a transformed people. That we would live in light of the resurrection, looking to you as, as the author of all of our faith. God, we thank you for the joy that can come about, like little children dancing in the streets because you are the king. I pray that we would keep our eyes, our gaze, our focus completely fixed on you and pray that you would be honored and glorified in our midst. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.